Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Shinzen Young. We'll have Shinzen tell his whole story in greater detail, but in essence, Shinzen is a well-known and respected teacher of Buddhist meditation. He is known for his innovative, interactive, algorithmic approach to mindfulness. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> uh, I'm reading it here. <laughs> it's a bit of a tongue twister. Interactive, algorithmic approach. Yeah, to mindfulness. A system specifically designed for use in pain management, recovery support, and as an adjunct to psychotherapy. He leads meditation retreats throughout North America and has helped establish numerous mindfulness centers and programs. He also consults widely on meditation-related research in both the clinical and basic science domains. And there are a lot of things I want to talk to you about today. Your personal story, the whole science and uh, spirituality interface, the mechanics of Buddhist practice, and perhaps you know juxtaposing that with what the Buddha might actually have been teaching, and the whole idea of God, which I heard you discuss very nicely in one of your audio recordings. But I thought I might start with, kickstart the conversation with a question about Robin Williams, who died this week. And you know, if you had known him, if you'd been his friend, what might you have said to him or to anyone suffering from depression, substance abuse, suicidal tendencies, and even early stage Parkinson's? What might you have said to him or such a person that could have made a difference? Actually, you mentioned that I work on an algorithm, which is a systematic procedure. So I might treat each of those different cases that you mentioned a little bit differently. But I think uh, if you want me to sort of answer in the most general way, I would say that I would tell a person who is in so much distress that they don't want to live anymore, that there's two kinds of dying. And it's understandable that when life gets very uncomfortable, our thoughts turn to ending it. So there's two kinds of ending it, uh, two kinds of dying. There's the physical dying, which if possible, we should avoid. And then there's another kind of dying, which is the dying of the suffering self, which allows us to remain physically alive and functional, vibrant, happy, actually, even if the source of the discomfort that was driving us to suicide doesn't go away, even if you still have Parkinsonism or whatever else the life situation is. If the suffering self dies, then you've solved the problem. So there's sort of what might be called physical suicide, which in general is to be avoided if at all possible. And then there's what might be called spiritual suicide, <laughs> uh, which doesn't mean killing your spiritual life, but rather uh, killing that which gets in the way of your spiritual life. And I counsel people who <laughs> I long ago stopped counting in terms of the number of people that have come to me saying, I want to commit suicide. Do you think it's okay? I mean, that just you know, I've had a long career and that kind of thing has come up a lot. And this is what I tell them. I say I can't really comment on, you know, I can't tell you kill yourself or don't kill yourself. But I can tell you there is an alternative. It requires a lot of work. I am sure it is incomparably better than suicide. Here's how we do it. Here's what you have to invest in terms of time and energy. And that deep desire for it to be over 
for the misery to end can be realized. So there's sort of two radical solutions when life becomes untenable, the physical radical solution and the spiritual radical solution. So I counsel for the spiritual radical solution, explain to them what's needed, what their probabilities of success are and so forth. I should also say, however, depression is a special deal. If someone is depressed, the very first thing I do if they come to me is determine whether they're in contact with a competent healthcare professional. I don't know what was the situation in his case. I haven't really, you know, been following the story. But my first job, if they have a, a clinical situation, is to make sure they're getting competent medical treatment. And as I'm sure everyone knows at this point, maybe because of the notoriety of this story, depression is one of the most, one of the biggest killer diseases on the planet. And even if it means, you know, people will sometimes say, well, should I take meds or whatever? And it's like, better talk to a health professional mm -hmm. and do what it takes not to have to kill yourself. I had one case where a woman was severely, severely depressed and they tried everything. They tried all the medications, whatever. And I actually suggested, okay, she sounds so depressed, so desperate. Why don't you look into electroconvulsive? It's like, whoa, that's way over the top, but look into it. Please think about it. Six months later, I get a letter from her. You don't know, but you saved my life. Yeah. I absolutely killed myself. So first thing, if it's, that's why I say I handle the cases a little bit differently. If it's depression, that's a medical thing. And I want to make sure that I'm part of a team that involves a competent healthcare professional. Carrie Fisher gets that electroconvulsive thing on a fairly regular basis. You know, the, the actress who played, played Princess Leia in Star Wars, uh -huh. that seems to help her in her case. Um, well, I'm, I know when I was 18, I was a fairly troubled kid, and I, and I had a realization at that stage, that was also the age at which I learned to meditate, but I, I had a realization that, you know, there's only one way out, and that's up. <laughs> <laughs> or in, or, or down. Or, or in, yeah, to yeah, put it that way. Pick your vector, but... Yeah, but you can't blot out your life because it continues regardless of what you do, and you're only going to make it worse. And at least according to, you know, over years of study, all the scriptures say you're only going to make it worse. You need to sort of evolve spiritually and then things are going to get better. Yeah, so I guess the upshot is for people that are desperate, I would say use that desperation to fuel a radical, intense liberation practice. Yeah. That would be the soundbite. What would you say to somebody who is like suffering terribly of a terminal illness? Would you condone euthanasia or just no opinion kind of? I, don't have a strong opinion on that. But once again, I tend to look upon dying, even the physically and emotionally painful parts of dying, as a natural process. And before you do that, there is a lot that you can do to train consciousness to experience physical and emotional distress more as a purification, less as a problem. You'll either be able to do that or not. If it gets too extreme, then okay, well, that's a different issue. I don't really have a, okay. uh, an opinion.
So I didn't mean to start the interview on a morbid tone, <laughs> but you know, this... hey, why not? <laughs> right. I mean, Buddhism is like the biggest doubter of it all. <laughs> Guess what? You are a soulless robot designed to uh, suffer and too stupid to know that fact. I mean, the, you know, the Four Noble Truths are incredibly powerful and liberating, but there is a sort of downer take on it that we sometimes hear. So hey, why not? Yeah, why not? So let's loop back though and talk about your life. You grew up in LA, you, you befriended a, a Japanese kid, and you ended up studying Japanese, going to a Japanese school, and carry it on from there. Give us some details, because people always like to know someone's background, and many people may not have known anything about you prior to this interview. Well, uh, I was, I'm old, I guess that's the first thing. I'm, I was born, when I was born, World War II was still going on. Mm -hmm. I was born in 1944. Okay. So I was born into a very different world than now. And if someone had said to me, guess what, by the time you're 70, the world is going to look this way, specifically American culture is going to look the way it now looks, I would have said, no way in the world is that going to happen. Mm. I was indoctrinated into American culture of the 1950s. That was my experience as a little boy. Eisenhower was president and the world looked a certain way. And Asia was not cool. Particularly Japan was not cool. We were still fighting the Japanese when I was, my dad was off fighting the Japanese when I was born. Yeah, so it was, it was mine. off in the Pacific. Actually, mine had, finished, mine had fought in the, in the Pacific and the Air Force shot down a couple of Japanese zeros and so on. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess we have a comparable yeah. <laughs> uh, cultural perspective. Uh, where were you born? Norwalk, Connecticut in 1949. Yeah, well, I was born in L.A. Mm -hmm. And my family of origin is Jewish with a fairly good sense of that cultural identity. I mean, I went to synagogue, you know, things like that. I went to Hebrew school, but when I was in what was then called junior high, what now would be called middle school, my best friend was third generation Japanese American, as you mentioned. So his family used to go see Japanese movies, which were not like cool or popular at all. It's just because they had you know, a certain cultural heritage and so forth. So they took me to see Japanese movies and I just was mesmerized, just entranced by uh, the culture of pre-modern Japan. So I started to, I went on this whole adventure. I found out that I, I, I wanted to know everything I could possibly know about that culture. You know how when you're a kid, you can get onto something mm -hmm. like, you know, it could be anything. Uh, uh, but, you know, it used to be cars, maybe a stamp collection. Yeah, or playing <laughs> the guitar or whatever. Yeah, so. but nowadays might be something a little different. Yeah. But, so I just got onto this Japanese thing. I was 14 years old. I want to know everything about this weird world. And throughout my life, I've been fortunate to have certain sort of epiphanies or insights that came to me. And the insight that came to me about this is, if you want to know a culture, language is the key. You have to master the written and spoken language. So I found out that they had Japanese school that met in afternoons after American public school, met all day Saturday, sort of like Hebrew school for Japanese American kids. Mm -hmm. 
so I enrolled in Japanese school, and by the time I, was, I had graduated from high school, I had had the incredible privilege of growing up bilingual and bicultural without leaving Los Angeles. Mm. I graduated from Venice High, uh, you may have heard of it, uh, yeah. Venice, California, mm -hmm. where I was a nerdy nobody. <laughs> and the same week, I graduated from Sawtell Japanese Language Institute, where I was the class valedictorian because I was the only non-Asian person that had ever gone through the, the Japanese education system in Los Angeles. And they wanted to show off this weird uh, white guy that was pretty good in Japanese. But I realized that I'd never be able to really understand the, the background, uh, understand Japan unless I knew the classical background of Japan. So the main cultural influence on Japan, of course, is China. So I said, okay, uh, better learn Chinese too. Wow. So my, my parents dutifully got me a Mandarin Chinese tutor, still in high school. Then it's like, well, you know, I'll never understand China unless I understand the Buddhist stuff, and that came from India. So once again, well, the key is the language, the classical language of India is Sanskrit. My parents dutifully got me a Sanskrit tutor, still in high school. So I had this incredible privilege of, in L.A., of this rich... Asian language background at a fairly early age. So that led to my going to Japan and that led to encounters with actual Buddhists who were practitioners and that led to a perception, well, maybe there's something to this stuff. So when I came back to the United States, I decided to do my graduate study, not in Asian, Asian languages, but in Buddhist studies. Mm -hmm. So I went to the University of Wisconsin. It was the late 60s. Big cultural shifts were happening. And Madison was one of the centers, as you may know. I mean, we had a socialist mayor who I knew. We had, you know, there was a lot of radical things going on, a lot of drug use. It was a really exciting time. And here I was getting a PhD in Buddhist studies, but I was still an academic. But then a couple things happened that got me more interested in the notion of practicing rather than just academically studying Buddhism. Uh, one thing was, like most people of that time, I used a lot of drugs, had some altered experiences, and it's like, oh, okay, well, there's maybe some possibilities of other forms of consciousness. And that was sort of on the pleasant side. We were talking about how in Buddhism they we talk about the first noble truth of suffering. So on the unpleasant side, my life idol, my mentor, my graduate advisor at the University of Wisconsin, Richard Robinson, he was the guy, when I grow up, I want to be this guy, okay? Uh, I knew a few Asian languages. He knew a dozen. He could pun in three Asian languages simultaneously, and his specialty was, was uh, logic the classical Buddhist logic, and then also, of course, modern symbolic logic. It's, it's like, this guy is an intellectual giant, Richard Robinson. But you've never heard of him because he died horribly and tragically. He was basically, had a fire in his home, his whole body was burned, but he didn't die quickly. They thought they could save him. He was in agony for a month, and then he died. Mm. And it's like, okay, so... What is all that knowledge and what is all that intelligence 
going to do when your entire mind-body is a shard of fiery agony. It's like, okay, first noble truth got really real for me. And I knew there was something called Buddhist practice, and I knew that there were possibilities of altered states from the drug experiences. So that sort of shunted me away from academic Buddhism, although I had this incredible background, but I, I didn't become a professor. Most of my friends in that program are now the retiring professors, the first generation of professional Buddhist scholars. We were, most of us were trained at the University of Wisconsin in that golden age, that magic time. So in any event, my interests then shifted to practice. And I was ordained in 1970 as a Buddhist monk in the Shingon, which is Japanese Vajrayana. And then just to finish it off, um, at a Zen retreat, actually, in Japan, I did some Zen too, I met an Irish Catholic priest named Father William Johnston. You can find his books. Uh, his first and probably most famous book was called Christian Zen. So he was part of the this Christian Buddhist dialogue that had been started where the meditators who were Christian, primarily Catholic, Roman Catholic, and then the meditators who were Buddhist, primarily Zen, were dialoguing. And of course, if you get theologians from opposite religions together in the room, what you get is a huge contentious argument. <laughs> but if you get contemplative practitioners from two very different traditions together in a room, what you get is a sense of Oh yeah, I know what you're into. So this yeah, I've always thought that. I've always thought if you get if you could get Jesus and Buddha and Krishna and Muhammad and so on, all, and Zoroaster all in one room, they'd just have a grand old time, you know, talking to each other with no no friction or disagreement whatsoever. It's just right. uh, just their followers who totally lost what they were teaching originally, who who have a problem with one another. I think in the long run there would be a consensus. There might be some initial disagreements, though. Well, but this uh, would be enriching rather than conflicting. Then, you know? yeah, then, it's like, oh, you see it that way. I don't understand that. Where, you know, how can you say yeah, that? You know? that's right. Well, that's a contemplative dialogue. So that was going on. And Johnston was part of that. And that really opened my eyes because I remember I was at this Zen retreat. And as usual, I'm the only foreigner there. And it's Zen. And as I'm sure you're aware, Japanese Zen can be a little bit on the rigorous side, shall we say, if not brutal. So I'm sitting there and I see this other foreigner walk in and I'm going, wow, it's another foreigner here. But he's not just a foreigner. He's like a Roman Catholic priest. He's got a Roman collar on. He's got red hair, reddish hair. It's like a real gaijin, a real, a real foreigner, okay? And I thought to myself, wow, this is weird. A Catholic priest at a Zen retreat, because I didn't know about all of this. I didn't have a broad view of meditation at the time. My view of practice at the time was limited to what I knew of Buddhism. So it's like, wow, it's a Catholic priest. Now, mind you, I came from a Jewish family, right? I'd never in my life talked to a Catholic priest, not even once. So it's like a Catholic priest, this guy doesn't know what he's getting into. And that, that was the self-talk. Like this poor guy doesn't know what he's getting into coming to a Zen retreat, right? And the, he sits down and it's like perfect lotus, 
And I thought, whoa, guy sits like a Zen master. It's like, what's going on? So at the break, I struck up a conversation, found out, okay, this is William Johnston, SJ, Society of Jesus, Irish Catholic priest. And he's been doing Zen for 10, 20 years, something like that. And I found out that, in fact, all the Jesuits in Japan do Zen. Mm. Their thing, okay, my thing was, I'll never understand this culture unless I master the language. The Jesuit thing in Japan was, you'll never understand this culture unless you do Zen, Christian Zen. Wow, that's really interesting. So we became friends. And uh, he lived at the Jesuit house in Tokyo. He had a room there with the other Jesuits. And he traveled a lot. And when he was away, he let me stay in his room in Tokyo. And he had a library on comparative mysticism. All of the meditators uh, of the main traditions, the standard textbooks, Christian, Jewish, in Christian, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, all the yoga, you know, the three vehicles of Buddhism, all etc, etc, etc. So I started to read and I realized, whoa, what, what I'm doing in Buddhist practice is actually a subset of a much larger worldwide contemplative experience that is a universal core in all the cultures and all the ages, regardless of the theologies most of the major religions have had a meditating practice and they sort of line up across even though the doctrines and, and cultural practices are very different there's a remarkable basic similarity and suddenly i had a periodic table of spiritual elements it's like oh my god this all falls into place and one of the most surprising things was to discover that there was like a Jewish meditation tradition. No one ever told me about that when I was in Hebrew school. It's like, wow. So that broadened my perspective on Buddhist practice from I'm doing Buddhist practice to, oh, I'm doing a particular form of something that has been known over the entire world. So I have to thank the Catholic Church for that. Yeah. And one other huge thank is just before I left Japan, ran into Father Johnston and he was showing me this article. The article appears in a book by a friend of mine. Uh, we weren't friends at the time, but later on we became friends. You know Charles Tart? Who Charles? Oh Tart yeah, is? sure. So Charlie spread the phrase altered states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. That's his thing. And he wrote a classic book called Altered States of Consciousness. In that book, you'll find a piece of research by uh, two people the two uh, scientists at Tokyo University, Hirai and Kasamatsu, on brainwaves of Zen meditators. It's a classic piece of scientific research, Very actually a very elegant piece of research. So Johnston was all excited about this because he was a Jesuit, he was an academic, he was an intellectual. And it's like, whoa, look at this. These scientists are using objective means to look at a subjective spiritual experience and are in fact affirming that it is plausible that what these meditators report is actually happening based on the physiology that we see here. And he thought that was exciting and I thought that was exciting. This is like 19, 
I don't know, maybe 1972, I'm making a guess here. So I'm thinking, okay, I started out, I wanted to be as Asian as anybody could be. I became a Buddhist monk in Japan. Okay, that's like being Japanese, right? I lived in that samurai movie for those years in a temple. Okay, I did this. I've ascended the mountain of Asia. I've come to the peak of what this civilization has achieved, which is the internal technology of meditation. Well, had, had you actually realized the pinnacle of possibilities in, in that meditation and tradition? I mean, had you become fully enlightened or you had just, no, you just, you just given it a good shot so far, but you'd, yeah. you'd, you'd immersed yourself in the culture that way. Uh, well, I immersed myself in the technology. No, fully enlightened. Well, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, we'll get into that. Not, yet, <laughs> not even yet uh, the, the first experience, which is usually called stream entry or right. tensile, hadn't had that yet. Okay but was a meditator and a committed meditator. Yeah. And I knew I was going to spend my whole life meditating and that this is the pinnacle of Asia in terms of, okay, what did these people do better than anyone else? Number one, that is also important to everyone else. Mm -hmm. Number two, okay, two things. Then I look out, do I see a comparable peak somewhere? Is there something that some other civilization has done better than anyone else, number one, and number two, is important for everyone else? And the answer is yes, and there's only one, and it's Western science. Right. Specifically, what happened after the 17th century, Newton and so forth, that whole explosion uh, that we're now living with, the scientific method, you know, Francis Bacon, the whole, the whole thing. Okay, Europe did that better than anyone else, and it's important to everyone else. So what if somehow the best of the East and the West, the two sciences could find a common ground? Well, Father Johnston was already showing me the inkling that that could happen. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna just meditate my whole life. That's all I'm really interested in now. But on the side, I'll study math and quantified science. And maybe someday it will happen that there will be a cross-fertilization movement of East and West. If so, I'll be in an ideal position as a professional meditator and as a paraprofessional scientist, I'd be in an ideal position to participate in that cross-fertilization. And would you believe it? It has happened and it's happened big time. Mm. So I'm a, just amazed. So the, the short story of me is I'm a Jewish American Buddhist that was turned on to science by an Irish Catholic priest. <laughs> Great. Uh, when you were um, being interviewed by Tammy Simon, I heard you tell some story about how you had the, the week from hell in a, in a Buddhist, uh, I guess it was a Zen retreat, mosquitoes the size of crows, and you know, it was just like this horrible, intense thing, and, but you had some profound real awakening at the end of it. Uh, was that a real important watershed moment that we want to touch on? I, I've had a lot of watershed moments. Mm -hmm. um, that was certainly one of them, although I wouldn't call it an awakening technically. Okay. Uh, and it was, yeah, I talk about that a lot because uh, it's hard to forget. <laughs> that was my first full-on meditation retreat. And it was within the context of Japanese Zen done in Japan. And yeah, it was um, 
It was, it was rough. Uh, yeah, it was rough. <laughs> it was rough. I was on the verge of crying. It was like the Navy SEAL training for Zen guys. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> you know, it's in that category. By the end, I was at the end of my rope. My whole body was shaking. My mental state was actually shifting towards paranoia and, delus and delusion. I was, you know, emotionally, I, like I say, I was just on the verge of crying, terrified, and just in shaking, like almost pass out kind of pain. The retreat was going to end soon. So I started to just scream in my head to myself at the top of my voice, you're not a baby, don't cry. You're not a baby, don't cry, because I, I was, I was going to lose it. And I guess that became a mantra without me realizing it, that sort of put me in a concentrated state. And then suddenly, just out of nowhere, my whole body relaxed, my mind stopped. The pain was still there, but instead of being like a red hot rock, it was like lava. It was red hot, but it was with sort of glacial velocity, slowly circulating through my whole body. And even though it was still red hot, the fact that it was circulating caused it to not bother me. And I just was there. And that was the first experience. That is a, what, what the, the first time something like that happens to a human being. That's a watershed experience. What happened? Well, in retrospect, I can tell you what happened. I spontaneously fell into a state of what I would now technically call equanimity. So equanimity is an attentional skill. It's the ability to allow sensory experience to come and go without push and pull. It's, in a sense, analogous to oiling your sensory circuits. There's different ways that people achieve equanimity, and there's, of course, many levels of equanimity. But one of the main ways that people learn equanimity, and probably most of your viewers have actually had this experience, you're in some situation, and it's really horrible, and at some point, you just stop fighting with that sensory experience, and it starts to flow, and the intensity level is the same, but the bother drops. Hmm. What has happened at that moment is you have spontaneously fallen into equanimity. And if you remember what that's like, um, the more you remember what that's like, the more it's likely to happen to you until you can access that on demand anytime you want. And then your relationship with physical pain changes forever. That's a watershed moment for any human being. Because from that time on, you realize, okay, well, I don't exactly want physical discomfort, but if I have to go through it, I know where this is going. So, yes. So that was an, a spontaneous experience of equanimity, I would say. Mm. And perhaps we might say, not only can you access that anytime you want, but that becomes your baseline rather than that, not, not something you have to willfully evoke. It's just there regardless, you know, whatever's going on. That's how I would define mindfulness right. as uh, 
<clears throat> mindfulness practice elevates the baseline of concentration, power, sensory clarity, mm -hmm. and equanimity, those three things. Okay. So what are some other watersheds? Uh, and, you know, maybe just wh however many you think are important to mention uh, and, and perhaps, you know, leading up to whatever you would consider to have been the most profound and lasting breakthrough that you've had. Well, I would say there's a lot of watershed moments. The first time I realized that I could treat emotional discomfort the same way as physical discomfort and that it would break up into a flow. Mm -hmm. Because it's hard to drop into deep equanimity with a physical discomfort such as pain, but it's even harder to drop into equanimity with an emotional discomfort. By that I mean the body experience of anger, fear, sadness, shame, humiliation, helplessness, impatience, okay? Uh, those kinds of body sensations. When you're going through a difficult emotion, there are potentially three sensory components, one visual, one auditory, one somatic. You've got possibly mental images. You've got possibly mental talk. And then you've got different shades of uh, emotional distress in the body. And you meditate for a while and maybe, you know, you practice long enough and you have an experience where significant pain just flows effortlessly and it hurts, the, the hurt is the same, the suffering is way down. So that's a watershed moment. And you might say it's watershed in the sense that it makes you into a different kind of person. If you don't know that that can happen with physical pain, then you're always in a certain kind of fear of physical pain. Once you know that that can happen, you still fear, but it's not the same. However, even after you've experienced physical discomfort break up into a kind of purifying, empowering flow of energy, it's hard to believe that the sensations of anger or fear or helplessness or humiliation, that those kinds of sensations could become maximally intense, fill your entire body, reach the point where you're almost gonna faint and then you don't fight it and it turns into the same kind of flowing energy. It's hard to believe that that could happen with those kinds of emotional sensations. The first time that does, that's a big watershed moment. I remember the first time that happened and that was long after the first time I broke physical pain up. It's like something happened. I was humiliated in public. I was experiencing rage and humiliation and it just turned into a breeze that was blowing through my whole body, just purifying and empowering. So that's a watershed moment. <laughs> and I would say to anyone listening to this, it is possible to do that. And then that becomes your baseline. So now you're, now you're, you're becoming the awesome thing, uh, a human of full feeling, a human that can escape into fear or shame. You don't necessarily need to escape from it. Uh, if you can't escape from it, there's another direction. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's a watershed moment. And those are both body. 
I guess what I'm getting at is like, you know, a lot of times people talk to me or they, they give feedback on certain interviews and, and uh, some people have actually said, I just want you to interview the people who are actually awakened, who are enlightened, you know. And I'm always a little squeamish about that term because it, it has to be more nuanced than that in most cases. And uh, even my wife who schedules the interviews, I suggest somebody and she says, well, is he awakened? And I think, well, I don't, you know, it's like he's real interesting. <laughs> and uh, awakening is, uh, you know, sort of this ill-defined term and even if you study Eastern cultures, there's so many different flavors and variations and gradations and, and, and all. And um, so, you know, just to ask you point blank, well, like another guy, Daniel Ingram, whom I interviewed a couple of months ago, is a little bold about saying, yeah, I've attained such and such level. And he, he sort of feels like, why should we be coy about that? If we're throwing our blood, sweat, and tears into this, uh, you know, we'd like to see some examples of people who have actually achieved what we're trying to do. And so I, if I, whatever I've achieved, I'm going to say. And so what do you think about that? And what would you say regarding your own level of attainment, just to be, again, point blank? Well, why not? I like the effect that Dan has had on the Buddhist world by sort of putting this out, okay? because it's something that people have tended to be sort of coy about for a gazillion good reasons. Yeah, because there's okay. all kinds of what, I mean, what, what, premature immaculation, we call it, you know, where people get up on a soapbox having, proclaiming themselves to be the be-all and the end-all. And, and, <laughs> premature immaculation. <laughs> ah. You like that? Yeah, I totally. Did you, did you make that up? No, I heard it from someplace. <laughs> really? Do you know the source? I don't, but you can use that, it. I will definitely use that. <laughs> premature immaculation. Yes. So... Usually what I would begin... <laughs> Might have been Mariana Kaplan, but I don't remember for sure. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to remember that. Okay, usually I would begin this discussion by, hey, let's list the half dozen really good reasons not to talk about this, okay? Because I think it's, it's important to realize that there are... There's not just one or two good reasons. There's a lot of good reasons not to explicitly talk about attainments. Right. And you really don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what they are. First of all, anyone can claim anything. Uh, there's that. But then there's the inherent ambiguity. Uh, like you say, apparently attainment is not a scalar, meaning a one-dimensional. Awakening is not a one-dimensional object. It's a vector. It has many dimensions to it, and those dimensions are independent, okay? And, and there is, at this point, no universal agreement among the masters and, and adepts and advanced practitioners of the world. There's no agreement as to uh, exactly what those dimensions are, how we're going to measure them, and how we're going to put a norm on this vector, a norm means mathematically to ascribe a single value that says how, how big this vector is. Uh, so I'm sorry for using this geek speak, but vector, vector is just uh, a quantity that has many dimensions, potentially, not just one dimension. So, and the norm of a vector is how you put a single number to that vector. So there's general agreement sort of 
you know, big picture wise. But there's not the kind of agreement that would allow us to say at this point in history that there's a true science of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. I think humanity is working towards a true science of enlightenment, where at some point, probably in the not too distant future, a combination of um, um, frank and patient dialogue among adepts and masters combined with the objective evidence of science, neuroscience specifically, all that coming together, that cross-fertilization that I've been talking about, probably within a century or so, hard to predict, um, maybe, but certainly within a couple centuries, which isn't all that long, we'll actually be able to say with confidence, you know, what enlightenment is, we'll be able to measure it, speak about it. Uh, do you, do you and, think and that uh, that cities could be any kind of measure, or are they of enlightenment? Are, yeah, or are they cities? kind of a special case? Like you know, uh, if you can levitate, you've achieved X, X level of, of uh, realization. Or do you think those are just sort of freaks of nature situations that have happened? Well, I think it's highly contentious uh, whether cities actually occur uh, in the physical world. Okay. One can certainly have. There are all sorts of historical accounts, but nothing contemporary that can, well, you can really see. The, uh, so Siddhis are like paranormal powers, et cetera, et cetera. So it is certainly the case that people can have a very compelling sensory experience of what seems to be paranormal powers. However, having a compelling sensory experience is not the same as something exists in the objective world and can be verified by science. Right. So the problem with the Siddhis or paranormal powers is firstly, it's highly contentious as to whether these actually do exist. That's Unless somebody could demonstrate the objective, the observable ones. Right. And no one's been able to do that. Right. Not in any compelling way. Right. And even uh, if they could, we'd have to really think about what it meant and what it, right. it signifies. So I would say Siddhis are not the first thing I would think of, and they're not even the hundredth thing I would think of, actually, to be honest. Yeah. The first thing I would think of is, has one experienced a paradigm shift? That is to say, a fundamental shift in one's understanding of self. And that shift would be a paradigm shift, meaning it's permanent, there's no going back. If you look at, a, let's say, a lunar eclipse and you don't have any knowledge of astronomy, what's your sensory experience? What does it seem is happening to the moon? Yeah, it seems particularly like it's dis disappearing. Yeah, or... Particularly if you've never, let's say you've never seen a lunar eclipse. Right. And the first time you see it, well, first of all, you're going to be very disturbed. If it's a solar eclipse, even worse, maybe. So what does it look like? Well, one thing it could look like is that there's a monster in the sky that's bite by bite eating up the moon mm -hmm. or the sun, which would be very disturbing. So once you know modern astronomy, you have a paradigm shift. You see the lunar eclipse, it looks the same to your senses, but 
your understanding is different. No way do you believe a monster is eating up the moon. You believe the earth is casting its shadow on the surface of the moon. And there's no way you could poetically think of it as a monster. Okay, but there's no way you're going to really believe there's a monster and there's no way you're going to be all bent out of shape about what's going on because you know something about the eclipse and you're never the same again. So the lowest level of enlightenment, the first step, if we're going to even use that word, the first step is something like that takes place with regards to the phenomenon of self. So the metaphor I'm making is there's eclipse and that's a, uh, that's a phenomenon. It's a sensory phenomenon. We see it, but there, there's our understanding of what that eclipse is and that can change and there's no going back. So everyone has a sense of their own limited identity, a sense that I am this mind, I am this body, I am these thoughts, I am these feelings, I am these sensations, I am these memories, plans, fantasies, this will, this desire. Everyone has a sensory experience of self. The first step in enlightenment, the sort of watershed that shifts from being like most people to being fundamentally different is there's a, a change in that paradigm. And in Buddhism, that change is called a realization into the fact that there never was a thing inside there called a self. But in other traditions, it might be called something almost the opposite, realizing that the true self, who you truly are and what God is, are the same thing. Or uh, there's a lot of other paradigms. But it's not an idea. It's not a belief. It's a change in one's relationship 24-7 to the sensory experience of self. After that time, until the time you physically die, no matter what arises in uh, your mind and body experience, some part of you knows my identity is not limited to this. So you might say that it's a shift from the mind-body being a prison where you're confined to the mind-body experience being a house that you live in and can leave anytime you want so that your identity has now become flexible. It's become unfixated. You can be anything, everything, and the nothing that is the source of everything and anything. All and, of the above. And there are degrees of that, aren't there? I mean, there's a ratio kind of thing where, you know, you might get an, an inkling of it, a, a scent of it initially, and then it kind of can grow and grow. But I'm skeptical as to whether you could ever or would ever want to be completely oblivious to having any sort of sense of individual self uh, because you wouldn't be able to walk through a door or feed yourself, <laughs> I should think. doesn't quite work that way. Mm -hmm. First of all, I would say, remember... I didn't say that the sensory experience of self doesn't arise. I said that the, the belief that this is a thing and I am it right. goes forever. So the senses operate just fine, both inner and outer. You still have mental images. You still have mental talk. You still have emotional sensations in your body. You still see physical sights. You still hear physical sounds. You still have the physical impact on your body. But the notion that that makes a thing called you right. 
that's gone for good and will never come back. So if you just get an inkling of it, but then it doesn't latch, I don't call that enlightenment. Now, we have to be really careful of, of enlightenment. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. So uh, the other thing I should say is some people have this experience, this change takes place suddenly in some people, but it also takes, can take place gradually in some people. So it's not necessarily that that paradigm shift happens instantly. When it does, we, it's very dramatic, but sometimes it can sort of sneak up on you over many years and indeed decades. So I would say that the first watershed, is there a permanent shift in your perception of the nature of your identity? Has your identity become unfixated? Is the mind and body no longer a place you're confined to? Can you at any time become what you're looking at or become the nothingness uh, whence it comes and whither it returns. That's the beginning of enlightenment. Now, I don't know what the end of enlightenment is, but I can tell you that whatever it is, if, if indeed there even is an end, okay, I can tell you that um, everyone I have ever met is still working towards that. I would say so, the same, incidentally, having interviewed almost 250 people and some of them pretty well known and supposedly very enlightened. I think everybody's still a work in progress. And, yeah. and even the, you know, and some of the really well known ones like Adya Shanti and so on say that very emphatically. He said, I, I, I'm just, I'm a beginner, you know, relative to what might be possible. I would say exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah actually, the, I would say exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. In other words, I don't know that there is an end to this, but let's just hypothetically say there is an end, just for a moment. Then what Adyashanti just said would be exactly what I would say. Yeah. The jump from not enlightened to initial enlightenment, okay, is tiny compared to the jump of where after initial enlightenment, how far you can go, okay? Yeah. Now, I, I do have some people say to me that, well, there is a final stage in the sense that, you know, the mind completely dissolves, you just rest in the self and in, in, in pure being and silence, and you're, you're there solid as a rock, and that just goes on and on and on. And after that, there is relative refinement, but that's sort of like icing on the cake. It's not really that significant by contrast with this establishment and the self or whatever you want to call it. So what would you say to that? Well, everyone has their own experience. Um, I would say there is that and it's significant. But I would repeat that I think even if you have that, there's a lot to learn. Because first of all, there's the liberation dimension, which could be called the freedom from the mind-body or in these very advanced states, the ability to abide at the source, sort of 24 seven. Mm -hmm. There's the liberation aspect, and then there's the behavior aspect. Okay, how do you carry yourself in the world? Mm. How effectively do you serve your fellow beings? And what do the people close to you ha uh, have to say about how you conduct yourself and so forth? Yeah. Now, I know individuals that pretty much abide 
24-7 in what you're describing, whose behavior is despicable. So in my way of thinking, there's an important dimension of enlightenment that they're not developing. And in fact, their freedom is allowing them to not have to develop that dimension. Good point. Like they're take, also, taking refuge in that, in that freedom and perhaps even in the notion that the world is an illusion and I can do with it what I will. You know, it doesn't matter if I sleep with my disciple's wife because all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players, you know. But what's important to realize about that is it's not in that perception is not entirely bullshit, okay? I mean, you can be a psychopath, okay, and believe that. <laughs> but these people that are that way, they have deep, deep liberation dimension. They're not just bullshitting, but how they have chose to interpret it and manifest it in the world is just plain wrong. I'm glad you're saying this, I, I agree. Uh, so there's that. Yeah. There's a behavioral dimension to this that is related to your liberation, but not the same thing. Your liberation should be the place that allows you to optimize how you carry yourself in the world as a person and to optimize your ability to serve others. Mm. That's, that's the use of your liberation. And if it's not that, then, well, you just have some of the dimensions of enlightenment, but not others. Furthermore, even the liberation dimension, you know that I have training in the sciences, and so I would tend to think the way a physicist or a mathematician thinks. Okay, there's a quantity called C. In our current known physics, nothing can be accelerated beyond C. Speed which of is light? Speed of light, okay. that's right. So there's sort of an absolute, okay, uh, physical constant called mm -hmm. C. So then any other speed is less than C. So there's a, there's a cap on C. So people like to talk about, okay, well, there's a cap on liberation. So that may be, that may be the case. However, if there's a cap, then it's gotta be the cap, okay? So I'm saying that enlightenment has many dimensions and the breaking of the identification with the mind body is just one of those dimensions. Mm. Behavior is another one, okay? But let's just look at the one dimension called the breaking of the identity with the small identity, okay? Let's just look at that. Let's just tease out that one dimension. And let us, let us say that there is theoretically an ultimate to that. Then that means that's gonna be the ultimate to that. That means no matter what happens to your mind and body, there's no suffering whatsoever. Now, let's just think of the consequences of what that would mean. It would mean Christ didn't suffer? Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. But remember, he experienced pain. Right. And I don't think it was, if we take sort of the archetypal view of Christ, I don't think it was just the pain of nails for a few hours. I think it's, from a Christian point of view, perhaps, all the pain of all the sin of all beings right. in all conceivable worlds. That's a little bigger pain, okay? <laughs> so I would caution anyone who likes to think of themselves as having reached the ultimate of liberation. I don't have a way of testing that. Remembering that liberation, breaking of the mind-body identity, 
is just one dimension of enlightenment as I'm choosing to use the well, E word. Here. Well, here's one way of testing it. I, I heard you give a talk about um, maintaining awareness 24-7, including during sleep. And uh, just the other day, the discussion came up about this, and I pulled out a, a file I have of quotes from all sorts of well-known spiritual teachers and saints from throughout history. And, and, and you, you quoted in your talk the Song of Solomon, which says, I sleep though my heart waketh. So if you lose consciousness during sleep, not, not waking consciousness, that's gone because you're asleep, but pure consciousness, then you haven't reached that certain stage of development. So that, that, might, that, that, might, that be. might be a litmus test. And there might be neurological well, correlates to that, which you know, would be distinct, distinctive. The, the, and, problem, yeah. the problem, though, is all of, all of the, these tests don't prove you've reached the ultimate. They prove you haven't reached the ultimate. These are all exclusionary tests. If you can't do this... Well, I'm not saying that, that that stage of development would be ultimate. I'm just saying it might be a milestone. I think it is. It's a good milestone. The point I'm making is that I don't know of any way to confirm if people have reached the ultimate in liberation. Yeah. Uh, but I know many, many easy tests to confirm that you haven't. Mm -hmm. So the exclusionary tests are easy. And if there's an absolute, then there's an absolute. So what that means is, here's the thought experiment. You have to imagine that we turn you over for six months or so to uh, professional torturers in Damascus. And can they make you suffer in that six months at all with anything? Understanding that we're talking about the proverbial blowtorch and pair of pliers uh, or 24-7 waterboarding or whatever. Well, if, how if about that? If, well, no, no, don't interrupt me. If uh, okay. that is a cause of any fear, <laughs> any suffering whatsoever, if that isn't just the same as tea with the queen, then you haven't reached the, whatever the ultimate in liberation is. Do you think there's anybody on earth who could pass that test? Probably. You think? Hmm. What if you took that person and began injecting them with methamphetamine every day in large doses uh, and systematically destroyed That's, their it's brain? All the same. You know? or, or Alzheimer's. It's all the same. Yeah. What if that person goes through Alzheimer's? So you're saying that the, the consciousness is so liberated that even though the, the, physical, basis. the physical basis is, is being destroyed and can no longer reflect it to, to observably to others, from, the, from a subjective perspective, nothing is touched. Yeah, pretty much. Hmm. And the reason to say all of this is just to realize what the consequence of the claim that there's an absolute or a cap on liberation and hmm. I'm there is. Right. Okay. I think it is totally doable. Actually, I think it's doable by me. Not now. And hey, I don't want to have to do that. <laughs> Believe me. But I think it is doable. When you say it's doable by you, you mean you could pass if the... I had to. You think you could pass the Damascus test? No. But I would give it a good try. <laughs> well, <laughs> or not. <laughs> I, I can't, I don't, I, no, I can't pass it now. Yeah. But after the, maybe after the first three months, I'd be there. Maybe. Huh. In other words, I'm trying to give people a ballpark of what we're talking about. It would probably take me a long, long time if I could do it at all. Hmm. And I'm not sure I could do it at all. I'm absolutely sure I couldn't do it right now. 
and people uh, would see see you screaming and and you know freaking out but you're saying that subjectively there would be a dimension that was untouched by the apparent suffering that was taking place that's the, the, yeah that's correct okay so what the difference is it's like or we don't have to get so dramatic to talk about Syria I mean just like you know I could be in an accident like my like Richard Robinson my mentor yeah okay. it could happen to anyone mm -hmm. life's I mean he just went into his uh, went into his basement the fuse was out he couldn't see he lit a match but gas had from a leak and just Boom. went up like a torch right yeah. so it could happen to anyone boy I would not want that to happen to me but deep down I know I know what I'd have to do. I I'd know what the program was. If that would happen, I I would just have to learn how to do forty years of meditation in forty days. Mm. So I, I just don't want to have to work that hard. Yeah. So we're talking about criterion of enlightenment, criteria of enlightenment, and uh, possible litmus tests. And we've dis discussed enlightenment. Ken Wilber's lines of development idea comes to mind, where you could, you know, have very dissimilarly developed lines of behavior, compassion, consciousness, you know, very various things. And so, I guess the question there is, how tightly or loosely correlated do you feel the lines of development are? I'm sure you're probably familiar with Ken's model. Do you feel that inevitably? if one has a lopsided development, the other lines are going to get dragged along, or could one easily spend a lifetime with a very lopsided uh, sort of development and actually you know, mistakenly assume that you were fully developed? That is a very interesting question. It's actually a statistical question. And because it's a statistical question and we don't have good data, I don't feel that I can give a confident answer. Essentially what you're saying is, what are the probabilities that a person could develop strongly in certain dimensions and be undeveloped in other dimensions yeah. and that not be corrected? Yeah, do the dimensions bleed into one another? Is it possible to cordon them off and, and have them not be influenced by one another or do they inevitably kind of carry one another along whichever one gets out ahead? Yeah, I would say that there is a tendency for the dimensions to carry each other. There is that tendency, but it is not guaranteed. And so the answer is, I don't know what the relative proportions are here. I don't know. Yeah, I can't comment on that. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is, since if you grow in some, you're likely to grow in others, but not inevitable, but not inevitably. I think the issue, the real issue is, what can we do to make sure that people do grow in all the dimensions? Mm -hmm. Good point. I, th I think that's sort of the central issue. Yeah. And I would say that there are certain factors that we can put in place that will make it likely that a person will grow in all the dimensions, not just some. And so if those factors are in place, then one will likely grow evenly. And alternatively, if they're not in place, there is the danger that one 
may not grow evenly mm -hmm. because there's actually a sort of dialectic to it. The main contrast that we're talking about is degree of liberation versus degree to which you're a good person by ordinary standards. I would say that's really the, the main two dimensions to deal with here. Liberation has its sub-dimensions, no doubt, and being a good person by ordinary standards has its sub-dimensions. But I think the basic question we're being asked is, can you become enormously free from your mind-body identity and not necessarily be a good person? The answer is yes. Will the fact that you do become free from your mind-body identity tend to make you into a good person? The answer is yes, but it's a two-edged sword because it can also make you okay with not being a good person. Hmm. So I know it's like, oh wait, isn't that a mixed message? And I'm afraid it is. So what we need here is like statistics averaged over many, many people, long periods of time. How do things tend to come out? Well, I would tend to think that on average, liberation makes you a better and better person on average. But I can't give you hard statistics on these things. Sure. So I can't be confident on that. I can be confident about a list of things that if they are in place, will likely end up with what we want. What we want is someone who's beyond the norms of society and very admirable by the norms of society. That's what we want. So I can list things that if they're in place, that will likely happen. So one is some sort of general behavioral guidelines. In Buddhism, we call it shila. Um, and there are four major ones, not taking life, not taking what's not giving, not speaking falsehood, not doing things in the sexual domain that would be consensual, uh, non-consensual or harmful in some way and, and so forth. So I think it's good to state general guidelines. On the other hand, we don't want to get all legalistic and spend all our time and energy trying to figure out the minutiae of morality, okay? But yeah, you have some general guidelines that are acknowledged. And these guidelines are not only useful in and of themselves, are they? But they're also useful as, they're also conducive to enlightenment. I mean, if you're violating all these guidelines, aren't you kind of hamstringing yourself? And Patanjali has his thing too with the yamas and the niyamas, you know, certain behavioral guidelines, which if adhered to are going to make you a better candidate for enlightenment. Yes, and that's the, not surprisingly, also the Buddhist take on things. Basically, Shila is the Buddhist version of yama and niyama. Mm -hmm. And you also see it in St. Teresa of Avila in the, in the Christian tradition when you read her interior castle. You see where she starts. She starts with these sort of ethical behavioral guidelines, mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. So you got that. But then there's a couple other things. I think that one should use the practice. One should use one's practice to try to deconstruct negative urges when they arise. And, you know, you can apply techniques to doing that. You can break them into their component parts and so forth. So that you're using the liberation practice not just to 
be happy independent of conditions, but you're using the liberation practice to actually modify your behavior. And the way that you do that is the central insight in that is to realize that um, objective behaviors, which in the Buddhist tradition are what we uh, what we say, what we do, what we think intentionally, okay, body, speech, mind. Objective behaviors are controlled by sensory experiences. If you uh, are trying to stop smoking, what is the urge to smoke? Well, there's a mental picture of smoking, there's mental talk about smoking, there's physical and emotional sensations in the body. If you can untangle those and then experience each one of those with equanimity until they become just a flow of energy, the urge to smoke will go away. Mm -hmm. So you can apply your practice, and if your practice is advanced, you can apply your liberation to actually deconstructing the sensory experiences that might drive and distort unproductive behaviors or maladaptive behaviors. Mm -hmm. So an actual intention to use the practice, not just to be happy independent of conditions, but to use the practice, the techniques, or maybe even your state of liberation as a place to work on behavior. So you have the guidelines for the behavior. You have a way of working with the behavior with your practice that is well-defined for you. And the other thing is you take feedback from everyone, everyone in your environment. The feedback loops are open. Typically where the wheels come off on a guru trip is that the feedback mechanism is broken. Either the students are afraid to give feedback or the teacher doesn't want to have to deal with the feedback or some combination of that. But somehow they're not just like, somehow the teacher isn't treated just like you treat your anyone else. And they're not told when they're doing things that are inappropriate and they're not continuously told and they're not confronted. So I think that throughout one's entire life, if one is into this practice, even if one becomes a great master with uh, an immense following, who has done incredible good work in the world and made even perhaps spiritual innovations, even in that case, to keep the feedback loops from everyone, including people that don't meditate, ordinary people, children, <laughs> uh, uh, certainly your students, it's like, okay, Listen to a lot of people telling you what they see. Keep those feedback loops open. Know that there will be forces both within you and within others that will tend to close them down. Make a concerted effort to keep those pores open. So the combination of your general guidelines plus the openness to feedback from, from everyone, not just your peers, other masters or you know, adepts, but just ordinary people, your students. The general guidelines plus the feedback loops, plus knowing how to apply your practice to actual behavior change. If those are lined up, then you should end up in a balanced liberation situation, mm -hmm. assuming that someone is also pushing you in the dimension of breaking the identification with the mind-body, that, that whole dimension. If you find that you're applying your practice, you agree with the ethical guidelines, you're listening to feedback, but your behavior is still off, then there's one more thing that has to be brought online. 
And that's what I call a, a behaviorally oriented accountability and support structure. So what does that mean? Accountability and support behaviorally oriented. I have a drinking problem. So I join a 12-step program. Mm -hmm. They support me in sobriety, but also, uh, and the sobriety is a behavior. You either, either drank today or you didn't, but there's accountability. I have to talk to my sponsor. My sponsor gives me assignments in the steps. I have to work the steps. I call that an example, or that is an example of what I call a behaviorally oriented accountability and support structure. Hmm. A therapist is not necessarily behaviorally oriented. They're going to support you. But some therapists, if they're behaviorists, they are going to actually be another example of a behaviorally oriented accountability and support structure. That may be needed, even if you're a great master. Hmm. So I would say that um, if you have all these factors lined up, and you have at least one teacher who has had at least initial experience of liberation and believes that you can achieve that pushing you and you have all this other stuff lined up and you keep that up for the duration for your whole life i'd say pretty good probability you will achieve at least the first levels of liberation and you will that will be a balanced liberation for you nice what you were saying about smoking and drinking reminded me of something that you said in your interview with Tammy Simon, which was that some breakthrough you had had, some, some awakening, some realization, cured you instantly of a 10-year addiction to marijuana. And that surprised me a little bit because in my own case, you know, I've been doing drugs for about a year and then I learned to meditate and I almost immediately found that the way I f began to feel all the time once I had begun to meditate was better by far than the way drugs had been able to make me feel temporarily and therefore I totally lost the taste for drugs from day one pretty much. So I was wondering how you could have been a dedicated practitioner for a decade and still found marijuana to be uh, enjoyable or desirable. Well, I don't know exactly how, but it happens. I mean, uh -huh. there's plenty of highly liberated people that are alcoholics. Yeah, I know that always totally puzzles me. I don't know. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> People have different genes, different makeup, yeah. they face different challenges. So what might be relatively easy dimension for one person might be a very difficult dimension for some other person. Yeah. It's just individual variation. But you know, I mean, one of the characteristics of, you know, you, you know the phrase Sat Chit Ananda, it's one of the characteristics of this realization is supposed to be bliss, Ananda. And so if the bliss is lively, wouldn't substance abuse of any sort detract from it and be sort of a, immediately a disincentive, you know, to continue with it? Apparently not. Apparently not. I just, I'm just scratching my head. This is something I've never figured out. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> well, I mean, liberated people still enjoy sex. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, okay. you I might see, say, I see your point. well, if you got enough Ananda, why bother? Why bother? Yeah, they, they still enjoy eating a good meal or something. Yeah, so. Yeah. It's probably in that category. Okay, so let's uh, let's shift now. I know that you have a, a fondness, uh, enthusiasm for the science spirituality interface. I'd like to bring out a point which might be a little different than you usually emphasize when you talk about that, and see what you think about this point, which is that I like to think of the human nervous system as the ultimate scientific instrument that 
spiritual practices could be pursued in a way that conforms with the scientific method theory and then and then you know experientially verifying that theory if possible and then new theory and so on and when you think of it as the ultimate scientific instrument when you consider other scientific instruments uh, you know telescopes microscopes a large hadron collider or whatever they're they're all pretty fancy and they extend our senses in certain ways that they would never be able to experience otherwise but actually, when you actually look at their, their physical construction, they're nowhere near as sophisticated as the human nervous system, the brain, the, even a single cell. So it's interesting to consider realms of possibility of what can be explored, what can be experienced, using the human nervous system as, as, your, as your instrument for exploration. Like you mentioned, uh, some areas where the Buddha you know, talked about things like gods and, and reincarnation and psychic powers and all. And you were saying, well, maybe, maybe not, hard to say. But he may have used his scientific instrument in such a way as to actually have experientially verified those things. And maybe, you know, it could take any number of other things, angels, whatever. Perhaps these are all realities which we could kind of agree upon as a culture if enough of us conducted the necessary experiments. So go with that. What do you have to say? Well, the problem with that is that, let's see here, what would be the best way to address that? Uniformity of, of use of that instrument instead of? Yeah. I'm trying to think what would be a clear way of explaining the problems inherent in that approach. I think I know what you might be trying to get yeah, at. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, it's like when science is conducted, the scientists have to explain exactly how they're using a particular instrument and all the variables and possible corrupting influences in the experiment. And they lay it all out and they publish their results in such a way that anybody else can replicate the experiment using the very same apparatus under the same conditions to see if they get the same outcome. And when, when you get into spiritual practice, it's such a messy field in terms of so many different possible practices and, and influences that it's really hard to have it be so cut and dried as it is in ordinary scientific research. Yes, I, I think that uh, would perhaps sum it up. In other words, if everyone that looked within who had comparable degrees of concentration, clarity, and equanimity skills, mm -hmm gave the exact same detailed quantified picture that might be one thing in other words if everyone that looked into the realm of god saw exactly the same gods that would be one thing but they don't right then that brings the entire endeavor into question because we also know that you can hallucinate, you can become intoxicated, and you can experience all sorts of stuff really vividly. So certain general patterns tend to come up within certain cultures, but there's no quantifiable agreement from introspection. I mean, I don't have a scintilla of doubt that someone like Meister Eckhart or St. John of the Cross uh, experienced no self in the Buddhist sense but they never talk about psychic powers or reincarnation or the Hindu god realms the way the mm. Buddha did and so forth. So that tends to make me, th and the Zen masters ve very seldom talk about these things. There's probably more liber liberation per capita on this planet in the Zen tradition than anywhere else. 
and they are silent about those kinds of things. Mm. And you could say, well, that's because um, they don't want people to be attached, et cetera, et cetera. But if these things really existed and they knew that, I think they would talk about it. And I've asked great Zen masters if they ever had any paranormal experiences. And they said, no. Huh. You know, and they're liberated. So yeah. there's, there's not a uniformity of, there's not a, so that's the problem. Some people have certain kinds of experiences that are vaguely similar, but for one person, God's going to have eight arms, and for another person, he's going to have four, and for another person, she's black. <laughs> so that would be equivalent to we get one reading on our spectrometer when we where we're in Paris and another one in, in Kampala would make us think maybe our physics is off. Well, it was interesting. In one of your writings, you said that as far as scientific means to enlightenment, we're at the Galileo stage, not the Hubble stage. <laughs> and uh, and you, you were speaking, I guess, pretty broadly and perhaps encompassing, including all the traditions and say, and you, I also heard you say that we shouldn't necessarily assume that some tradition as it was founded 2,000 years ago or even as it's practiced today is the be-all and end-all. And just as we were saying earlier, a spiritually enlightened person might be in, actually in a fledgling stage of development compared to what's ultimately possible, the same could be said of a whole tradition. And it might be that a tradition has the capacity to bring a person to bring people to a certain stage provide certain ex levels of experience certain types of experience and another tradition has a different flavor of that where they're going to result in different experiences but none of them it's the blind men and the elephant thing none of them has the whole elephant and uh, maybe there will never be a tradition that has the whole elephant so to speak in its in its perspective anyway something interesting to play with you want my response yeah yeah please uh well, I was, when I said we're in the Galileo stage, I was referring to something pretty specific, which is the attempt of hard science to, by hard science, I don't mean it's hard to learn it, I mean it's quantified science. Right. The attempt of quantified science, physical science, to uh, look into the process of liberation. We're just starting with that. Um, I see. And many, you sometimes hear people claiming that, oh, yeah, we understand the, ne the neuroscience of enlightenment or something like that. But they just that, the yeah, and then and because they want to sell books, <laughs> uh, basically. You know, the reason most books are written is so someone can sell that book, right? You always have to distrust, <laughs> or not distrust, but just bear in mind that's basically why people write books is to sell them, right? So if I claim, hey, we've, we've discovered the neuroscience of enlightenment, well, I'm going to be able to maybe sell a book if I can get the right jacket cover and make it look right and make a few quasi-science sounding claims, okay? So the reason I use that metaphor of Galileo the Hubble, Hubble yeah. yeah, Galileo versus the Hubble telescope is we're at a delicious stage Galileo, he knew he was on to something, okay? He had an awareness extending tool. It didn't distort anything. It didn't change anything. All it did is resolve and magnify, made something look larger, 
and it showed detail. He had an awareness extending tool and he applied that tool to looking at the moon and other celestial objects. And he discovered that it's not like what everyone believed. It's not like what Aristotle said it had to be like. It just isn't. And I'm sure he must have thought, who knows the consequences of this right now? We're, it's like, obviously things aren't the way we thought they were. And this is probably going to really go somewhere. And in fact, it really did. It ended up in Newtonian physics and then in relativistic quantum physics and modern cosmology and the Hubble is and the, similar. These kinds of telescopes are sent up based on the modern science of cosmology. A Galileo could not even imagine the specifics of where it was going, but he knew he was onto something important. So we have relatively crude ways of imaging brain function. We have massive array EEG, we've got MEG, magnetoencephalography, and we've got the current sexiest approach, which is fMRI, functional uh, magnetic uh, resonance imaging. So we have these tools, and now we're looking at meditators and we're looking at liberated people, and we're getting a hint that there's something, okay? We know we're on to something, and this is probably going to lead to a stunning breakthroughs in the future. Mm. So that's the exciting part, but the frustrating part is we don't really quite know what we're on to yet yeah. <laughs> in specific, but I would suspect that barring a catastrophic collapse of human civilization in the next hundred years or so, I would suspect that those neuroimaging technologies will grow to the point where we actually do have a picture of, of enlightenment. And when we do, we'll be able to talk about the subject in a, a way that none of the great masters of the past could have. Yeah, and I heard you say that, it, that with the marriage of sufficiently sophisticated science and spiritual practice, the two together could come up with means of gaining or attaining enlightenment, which are far more efficient and effective and universally applicable than we've seen so far. That, that would be the holy grail, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it now, could be something you know, that you, you get by the time you're graduating from high school, you're enlightened, you know, <laughs> or, or at least 90% of the people or whatever. Yeah. Now, as soon as I bring that up, I'm aware of a raft of yabbats that yeah, lies in people's minds. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but have you thought about this? Yeah, but have you thought about that? Yeah, but have you thought about that? And my answer is yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I have certainly thought about every positive and negative consequence that I can imagine that might happen if we were able to accelerate enlightenment. Mm -hmm. But my take is that enlightenment is a natural process. I described that breakthrough where I said uh, I was sitting there and I was in so much pain and then suddenly I wasn't fighting the pain. That just happened. And I would say that that's just waiting to happen inside anyone. That's a, a natural response. 
And even the, the paradigm shift of liberation, I believe, is just waiting to happen. So it's not like, oh, we're going to figure out some Frankenfood kind of weird thing that we're going to do to make humans into enlightened cyborgs or something by modifying them in an unnatural way. Presumably, all we have to do is eliminate something that's getting in the way, mm. and then the liberation will just happen. So that's sort of how I see it. So, But it could be more than one little thing getting absolutely. in the way. I mean, the brain is, is vastly complex, and it could be that a, re, a, a thorough restructuring of the brain over decades is what's called for to really bring about full realization. You're not going to do that by taking a pill or doing some little technique for, for a day or two. Well, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> who knows what the science of the future will be? Yeah. We, we just don't know. But I would suspect if we had a, a scientific view of the brain changes associated with liberation, then based on that, we could probably figure out ways to accelerate a natural process yeah. and therefore make enlightened consciousness spread virally mm -hmm. over the planet fairly quickly. I kind of think it's happening um, in a very organic way, a grassroots sort of way. I mean, if we had technologies to accelerate, I think there's always going to be the safety factor because um, we've all seen people who went too far too fast and, and you know couldn't handle it, freaked out, had psychotic episodes and so on. There has to be an integration process uh, and a stabilization process. But I do think there's a quickening taking place on the planet from my observation. And um, it's like the membrane that blocks people from enlightenment has, you know, which the, you had to have a Superman like the Buddha to, to pierce through before because it was so thick, has become quite thin and a lot more people are, are breaking through it. Yeah, I, I think even if there wasn't this science technology acceleration, mm -hmm. If we can make it through a few more centuries without a catastrophic collapse, mm -hmm. then I think, I think you're right. Because what's happening is, essentially, there's no barriers to the spread of knowledge of how to meditate. There's no essential barriers to it uh, as there were in the past. I mean, if you were Chinese living in the Han Dynasty, and you wanted to learn how to meditate, you had to risk your life to travel to India to go through the deserts of Central Asia. And then you'd get in India and you'd have to find someone that knew their stuff, right? And you'd have to deal with language differences and you, you know, it would be a big deal. Now, you're one click away <laughs> from literally thousands of teachers, many of whom have had at least those initial experiences. Yeah. It's just popping up all over the place. Uh, if someone tells me, hey, there's this 23-year-old kid that has a website that claims he's enlightened and has had these experiences, you know, I have to be honest, the first thought that goes through my head is not, oh yeah, right, bullshit. The first thought that goes through my head is, oh, probably. Yeah. yeah. At least, and, Wow, it's great. Now, talking about the initial experience, right? That's pretty available. 
that's stream entry or Ken show kind of thing. And when you're 23, so, you might well think that your initial experience is the full enchilada. <laughs> well, that, that could happen. That's, that's why you need those feedback loops. Right. You know, you said several times that if we survive the next 100 or 200, 300 years, personally, I think that the, the kind of the upwelling of spiritual awakening that's taking place in the world is, you could say, God's response, nature's response to the, the dilemma we face and is providing just the antidote that could get us through the next few hundred years with flying colors. Uh, in other words, science alone without spirituality is a dangerous thing. And, you know, that the, the spirituality that's rising up to counterbalance it and to complement it and, and it, and it can complement spirituality, is proving to be a, a beautiful um, possibility for solving the problems which human minds in their more deranged conditions have created. A lot, times, a lot of times my questions are like <laughs> comments and, I, and you can just comment back. Uh, I don't know if I can ascribe causality, but I think what you're describing makes sense. It, it seems to be what is happening, but we don't know, okay? You know, I always like to quote uh, Yogi Berra, who would make these weird, strange, logically strange comments, right? Yeah. So one of those Yogi Berra-isms is, I never make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> so, I have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. But what I would say is on the assumption that we're able to avoid a catastrophic collapse for a, a century or two, under that assumption, if things continue the way they're continuing, I think what you're describing will happen, that spirituality and science will evolve into a, a single powerful human thing that represents our next um, step in evolution. I guess I wouldn't say, I'm going to say that would happen. I'm going to say it is not unreasonable. It's not a ridiculous thought yeah. that that would happen. And since the consequences of that would be more or less everything, I mean, what's, how do you put a, a dollar value on that? Mm. Is that a hundred trillion dollars? Okay, is that a trillion, trillion dollars? It's like if most humans were integrated, liberated, okay, that, that ideal I was describing of being free, but at the same time, nice. Right. If most human beings had that combination going for them. A vastly different world. Yeah, what's it worth? How many trillions of dollars is that yeah. worth? When you think about what research you should invest in, what you do is you look at the probability of success and then you multiply that by the positive consequences. So the probability of science and contemplative spirituality coming together and coming up with something new, I don't know what that probability is, but even if the probability were only 5%, <laughs> okay, you have to multiply that by a payoff of a, a trillion, trillion dollars. Now, how valuable is this research? Yeah. Where should the money be going, <laughs> big picture-wise? I interviewed Dan Harris a couple of weeks ago, the ABC News guy who wrote 10% Happier, you know? And uh, he mentioned during the interview that he had just meditated before the interview and that it had been really unpleasant. And, you know, he, he just had to sit there and suffer for half an hour. And I, I kind of my heart went out to him because in my experience, the way I 
went about it or learned, it was always enjoyable and um, you know something I looked forward to, not something that took serious discipline to sit down and do because it was so gratifying. And I said maybe you could just go easier on yourself. Maybe maybe you're straining, struggling. So as you after all your decades of experience and practice and teaching, do you still regard meditation as necessarily often being an ordeal? Or has your teaching evolved to the point where, or I, that's that's sort of a judgmental way of stating. I don't mean to say that what I have what I've been doing is more evolved, but has has your understanding of of meditation changed in such a way that when you teach people now, they don't have to go through as much difficulty as you went through in your earlier days? That's a very interesting question. I would say that how difficult meditation is at a given time is going to be a function of basically two things. How big the challenge is that you're experiencing from the outside world. So that's factor number one, because I don't care how practiced you are, if you're facing a big challenge in the world, hey, you sit down to meditate, there may be some uncomfortable content there. Sure. Uh, another factor is that there's a natural rhythm of release of what we call technically the sanskaras. I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure you're familiar with this yeah. term. In the Pali language, sankara. Mm -hmm. uh, in Sanskrit, sanskara. Mm -hmm. Those are the, in general, the habit forces deep within. It's one of the Indian words for what the West calls the unconscious. And there's a little bit of an implication often that these are limiting forces, although technically sanskaras are any kinds of habit forces, positive or negative. But there are limiting forces within us, negative sanskaras, and they're deep, deep down. And when they release, our surface sensory experience might be uncomfortable. Yes. So through a combination of the external challenges from situations, some combination of that plus this sort of natural rhythm of release of these sanskaras, then sometimes practice is going to be easier, sometimes it's going to be harder. Mm -hmm. And I think we just have to accept that that's the way it goes. If you run in nature, you're going to sometimes encounter hills, sometimes encounter valleys, and you shouldn't stop running just because you have a hill. Now, to get to your question, though, which is a very interesting and meaty question, with regards to how my teaching has evolved over the years, I definitely have something I can say, which is, it's a paraphrase. One might say, all problems have solutions, okay? That's a phrase that a person might use. Now I'm gonna modify that phrase in a little bit of a strange way. I'm going to say, all problems are solutions. They are solutions to some other problem, but you don't realize it. So I understand that that sounds very abstract and a little weird, but it goes to the heart of the way that I like to teach practice. When a person is encountering something that is perceived as problematic, my main job is to find a way to make that an optimal growth experience for that person. And I don't mean an optimal growth experience in the sense of, well, everything is just another effing growth opportunity, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't mean that. I mean that 
the structure of each specific challenge as it comes up, when you analyze it carefully, will have within it features that if you work with them will optimize your growth. So when, when a person is having a hard time, this is where the interactive algorithm comes in. I start asking them questions, getting a lot of very specific information about the sensory makeup of the challenge that they're going through. And then based on that information, I'll be able to show them often that what they thought was a problem has associated with it a very specific window of opportunity. If you work with it this particular way, you're going to get something that you couldn't get if you weren't having this so-called problem. So one of my main jobs is to show people the optimal way to work with each challenge as it comes up. So if Dan were my student and said, you know, oh, I had this terrible, uncomfortable experience, I would start a detailed probing process to try to get a sense of uh, exactly what that was sens sensorially. And there's a high probability that something would come up there that I'll be able to say, oh, okay, that aspect of it is actually going to give you a payoff that you couldn't get otherwise. It's a really good thing, but you have to work with it this way and I'll show you how to do that. To what extent do you think that what is being taught today in terms of Buddhist practices, and I know there are a whole lot of different flavors in different parts of the world, corresponds to what the Buddha was actually teaching. I guess we don't really know what he was actually teaching, do we, in terms of a practice? Or do you have a pretty good idea and you feel that what you're doing conforms to that? That's pretty tricky. We don't have solid written records where we can with confidence know how the Buddha taught exactly. Mm -hmm. We have some general sort of um, principles. In general, it's thought that what we find in the Pali literature is closest to what the Buddha taught. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it's exactly what he taught. And we know that what we find in the later Mahayana may represent important extensions of what the Buddha taught, but is less like what he taught. Doesn't mean it doesn't bring you to liberation. It just means it has features that objective scholars don't think were present in early Buddhism. And then the next step after that, Vajrayana, seems to be in some ways the most divergent from what the Buddha taught. Once again, it doesn't mean that it doesn't bring liberation because there's such a thing as evolution. New things are discovered. These things that we find in Mahayana that we don't find in Hinayana, the small vehicle or Pal the Pali Canon, and the things we find in Vajrayana that we don't find in Mahayana, some of them may be improvements and some of them may be the opposite of improvements. But in terms of general picture, there's sort of a, a big picture view is what I just said is shared by most objective scholars of Buddhist history. Mm. But the criterion is not, oh, we, it, 
we need to teach just what the Buddha taught because um, uh, we, we would need to dialogue with the Buddha to really understand what he taught. Yeah. And we can't do that. Yeah, so I think that's what I have to say about that. I will say this, well, you asked me about my teaching. Now, I am sure that there are a gazillion things about, uh, about the way that I teach and go about things that would pretty much horrify the Buddha. Uh, but that's because he's a person of 2,500 years ago in a very different world. It's, you know, it would take him a while to get used to our world. <laughs> okay. You know, there's that. But I will say this. There's one central discovery that he made that I don't think gets emphasized enough in practice in any of the three vehicles, actually. And it's the divide and conquer, the fact that you can untangle the sensory strands of self and the somethingness goes away. Now, I'm very aware that all of the Buddhist traditions talk about this. I'm not saying that. They absolutely talk about it. But what I'm saying is, for me, that's the centerpiece of practice. That's it. That's basically what I teach people. I don't use the five skanda model because that's too ambiguous and inaccessible to a beginner. But I use something like that. So the five skanda model essentially says there are these five components. If you un untangle them and break the grasping around them, the somethingness of self goes away. Hmm. So I, give, I offer an alternate taxonomy but it's still the, the same basic principle. You have mental image, you have mental talk, you have physical and emotional body sensations. If you can untangle that and break the congealing and grasping around it, the somethingness of self goes away. And when the something of self, somethingness of self goes away, that's your initial liberation experience. Hmm. Now, I make that the centerpiece of my teaching. Sometimes that sort of gets lost in the way people teach. So if I were to say, you know, you ask me specifically how I see my relationship to the Buddha, I would say, I take that seriously and I really emphasize it and my techniques are built primarily around that. Culturally though, in a lot of other ways, I'm sure that the Buddha would have a lot of difficulty adjusting to me. Yeah. I just thought of a follow-up question to the Dan Harris question, which I think relates to what you just said about the untangling. And you, you answered the Dan Harris question in terms of release of some scars can make you uncomfortable. I guess my question would be, if you're having a crappy experience in meditation, if it's an ordeal, not just occasionally, but, you know, often, is it really the release of some scars that's making it unpleasant, or is there something... About the way you're practicing. Some, something about your practice that, that's straining or unnatural or just making it harder on yourself than it needs to be. Highly likely. Yeah. It is highly likely that that's the case. That's exactly what you go, go to a competent teacher to find out. Yeah. And they will analyze. I mean, there's a place in this practice for bearing down and there's a place in this practice for easing up. And there's just no way around that. And so there is a kind of dialectic of... Even the Buddha talked a lot about that, like tightening the strings of a, a lute. You don't make it too tight, you don't make it too loose. Right. So 
a teacher can help you with that dialectic. But someone struggling with practice is a multi-dimensional problem. And I like to analyze each dimension. But you're right. If it's a schlep every day, if it's an aversive experience, then it may be that it's just something you have to deal with and there's no way around it. But before you resign to that, I would uh, get several qualified opinions by competent teachers, just like you'd go to several competent doctors, yeah. see what they have to say. That's a good point. I mean, Dan made the point that, well, I want to give people realist realistic expectations. I don't want them to think this is going to be a cakewalk because then they're just going to give up if it's unpleasant. But uh, the flip side of that is, well, you know, if this whole trip is about becoming a happier person, uh, a better person, do we really need to sort of flagellate ourselves in order to achieve that? Because, I don't, I don't think that's not very yeah. ap appealing, you know? That's right. Well, here would be my metaphor. Once again, the geek comes out. So let's say that there's some chemical reaction. It's natural, but you want to speed it up. Well, one way you can speed it up is by heating it up. But the problem with that is that sometimes that can mess with the reaction. So it's true, if you can deal with discomfort with your practice, expose yourself to big challenges, that's analogous to heating things up, okay? And that could speed up the reaction. I mean, when I, when I talked about that first breakthrough, I was in hell on wheels, okay? And I couldn't get out of it other than to just run screaming from the Zendo. So I was trapped and there was a lot of heat. And in that particular case, it speeded up a reaction. So mm. it worked out. Yeah. But sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Sometimes in a reaction, if you try to speed up the reaction by putting in more heat, it causes the reaction to go askew. Have you even seen people go psychotic and all under intense practice? Very occasionally. Okay. But it's always under intense practice and it's almost always someone that has had those tendencies before. Right. So I would not like say, oh my God, people are gonna flip out mm. statistically. I, can't say I haven't seen it happen, but more common is the dark night. Yeah. That's more common than psychosis, but that's a whole other conversation, which I've spoken a lot about. But let me just complete the metaphor and then maybe we need to be winding up. Yeah, we do. The, uh, how can you speed up the reaction without adding heat? Or how can you even reduce the heat because it's messing with the reaction and still speed up? Well, the analogy in chemistry is a catalyst. Mm -hmm. And a biological catalyst is called an enzyme. So in this case, the trick is to talk to a teacher who knows how to give you the approach that's going to bring maximal growth with minimal heat. I can't say that you might not have to sometimes go through some heat, okay? But I can also say that what I've spent the last 40 years trying to figure out is the flowchart, the algorithm. What, given a particular kind of challenge, what is the optimal procedure that will allow the maximum reaction speed with the minimum heat? 
Let me ask you one final question to wrap it up, and I'll conclude after this. Uh, you mentioned uh, transcending the world to improve the world, and you also said the three characteristics of someone who could save the world might be meditation practice, scientific mentality, and thinking outside the box. Weave those together into a response. Uh, response to? Well, you know, transcending the world to improve the world, and the three characteristics of someone who could save the world, and presumably lots of someones, if, if we could sort of multiply this, are, you mentioned, meditation practice, a scientific mentality, and thinking outside the box. Well, I'd like to talk about the goals of this practice in different ways, you know. There's just a lot of ways of classifying the goal of the practice, but one way to think about it is that mindfulness practice allows you to appreciate the self and the world sensorially, just as they are. It gives you an experience of transcending the self and the world, and it motivates you and makes you effective in improving the self and the world. Now, I would say, what would be the ultimate improvement of the world that I can imagine, okay? So if it's about appreciating, transcending, and improving, and seeing that these reinforce each other, they're part of one process. If that's what it is, then what, what is the ultimate thing that I can imagine that would improve the world? Would be what we were talking about before, to come up with a way that um, accelerates this process. So the question is, what kind of people could come up with something like that? Who's likely to be able to figure that out. And what I came up with is, well, it's um, likely going to be people that have three things going for them. And each of those three things is no small thing. So to have all three of them going for you is sort of a really big thing. So one is deep practice. So that means you actually have <laughs> experienced what's beyond <laughs> self and world, okay? You're not just a meditator, you're, you've had at least a stream entry or Kensho type experience, and that's integrated. So you've actually experienced transcendence of self and world. You're that, and you have a scientific mentality. Uh, you're trained to think quantitatively, you can design experiments, you can do the levels of mathematics needed for that kind of work. So that's a scientific training. And then the third is out-of-the-box thinking, which means although you've been trained in a certain tradition, you see things in a larger light, you don't necessarily just accept it on face value. And uh, you've been trained in certain scientific paradigms, but you realize that there may be other ways of looking at things. So that's an out-of-the-box, highly creative person. Mm. So if you have someone that's had a fair degree of contemplative attainment, a good scientific education, and is a highly creative thinker, and then they put their mind probably combined in a team of other people. These people put their mind to the question of, okay, we live in this world of freedom. We live three times as large as we ever imagined we could. How can we make this available to more or less everyone on the planet? A team like that, putting their efforts together, 
maybe not in this decade, maybe not in the next decade, but in one of these decades, in the next century or two, they could probably solve that problem. Mm. And that would be the biggest thing that you could do to improve the world because you would basically fundamentally re-engineer human beings into spiritual beings. Yeah. Well, you've just described yourself, actually, and uh, <laughs> that's why I'm not that guy. Because first of all, I'm too old, and secondly, science probably isn't ready. I was I was too soon. Okay. Well, you're a but, you know you're a forerunner. Yeah, but I think it's cool. I get to think of myself. So this is my sane form of grandiosity. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I hope you understand the joke here, sure. right? Not taking this too seriously. So people are grandiose. I mean, we are. And I have grandiosity, but I like to think that it's sane, okay? So my sane grandiosity is, no, I'm not the guy that's going to save the world. But if someone does, there'll probably be something like me, and that's kind of cool. Yeah. You're, you're the avant-garde, so, and actually, it seems to be happening. I mean, there's more and more teams of researchers at Harvard and other universities, some of whom you've collaborated with, who are, you know, getting into serious work on this stuff. So, you know, compared to what it was four decades ago, it's, it's really gone somewhat mainstream and obviously can go a lot farther, but uh, it's picking up the pace, you know, it's gaining momentum. Who knows? Yeah. 50 years from now, 100 oh, yeah. years from now, someone watches this program and say, wow, <laughs> way back then they were already talking about this stuff. Yeah. It's you and I, we'll be, we'll be teenagers watching this <laughs> saying, oh, cool, man, this is, <laughs> I'm going to get into this. <laughs> All right. Well, great. I really appreciate having had this conversation with you. I'll wrap it up now. Is there any final words you want to say before I wrap it up? Oh, no, I'm completely talked out. Okay, good. So uh, I've been talking with Shinzen Young. As always, I'll be linking to his websites, his books, anything else of relevance. Uh, and he, he has a lot of good stuff, too. I mean, your Facebook channel is, is fantastic, the way it's organized with all these playlists all categorized in different... Actually, that's the, that's the YouTubes. Yeah, you, that's what the I meant you, to say. I meant to say the YouTube. YouTube's yeah. The one-stop shopping for me is uh, basicmindfulness.org. Mm -hmm. And then that has all the other links are right on that page. Yeah, and I'll be linking to all your stuff and to your books and so on. If people come to, well, you can go to basicmindfulness.org. You can also go to batgap.com to see more about Shinzen and about all the other people I've interviewed and will interview. They're indexed under past interviews in about four different ways, so check that out. Under future interviews, you'll see people who are upcoming. There's a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. There's a donate button. We appreciate that if people donate. BatGap is a 501c3. If you're in the U.S., you know what that means. There is a link to an audio podcast on every interview, so you can sign up on iTunes or one of those other podcast things and listen in audio. And also there's a little discussion group that crops up around each interview. Sometimes it gets pretty lively, and there'll be a, you know, one for, for this interview, uh, which you'll see a link to in Shinzen's, uh, on Shinzen's page. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week with Sally Kempton. Thank you, Shinzen. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks. Very good. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.